Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of Uh, The angelic conflict in our ongoing study of the book of Revelation this morning, we need to go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction this morning. But before we do so, we have to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. The New Testament teaches that when we sin, even though we have already put our faith and trust in Christ for eternal salvation, when we sin like a disobedient child, We break fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but we do hinder that ongoing relationship we have with the Holy Spirit, and it's called grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit so that His ongoing sanctifying spiritual growth-producing ministry in our life is breached. The way to recover is to simply admit or acknowledge your sins to God the Father in silent prayer. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to reinforce that teaching and to give you an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word this morning. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come to a time when we submit our thinking to your revelation, a time when your word speaks to us, and under the God, the Holy Spirit, we come to understand your plans and your purposes in human history, your plans and purposes for mankind, and the overall scope of the entire plan of redemption that you have. Father, as we study these things this morning in the context of both the past and the future, we come to understand the magnitude of your grace and the complexity of your plan. Pray that we might be able to understand these things and that they would be an encouragement to us and strengthen us in our own spiritual life, knowing that there will come a day when there is accountability and that there will be justice in the universe and evil and sin and injustice will be judged, condemned, and finally destroyed in the lake of fire. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
We're studying in the book of Revelation, but we will not be there much this morning at all. For those of you who are visitors, those of you who perhaps haven't been here because you've been out of town for a week or two during the summer and lost somewhat of the context, we are studying the role of angels in the book of Revelation. As we come to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which is the context, immediate context of our study, we see the angels gathered before the throne of God. But as we go into the later chapters, subsequent chapters in the book of Revelation, as we prepare for Revelation chapter 6 and the distribution of the first series of judgments in Revelation, the sealed judgments, they are distributed by the angels. Angels play a vital role in that future event that is known as the tribulation, that time, that seven-year period of time that culminates in the battle of Armageddon and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth and the final judgment of sin among the angels and mankind. I have pointed out in the past few weeks that approximately one-third of all references to angels in the New Testament are found here in the book of Revelation. So to understand these things, we have to have a fairly good understanding of God's plans and purposes for angels. Who are the angels? What are the angels? Where did they come from? What about the demons and Satan and the origin and fall of Satan, which is where we are in our current study? Last time I gave you a little overview of the book of Revelation and the importance of angels in Revelation. Just a quick review. We see in Revelation 4 and 5 the angels surrounding the throne of God. Again, we see them around the throne of God in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. In chapter 7, at the beginning, we see the four, see four angels controlling the weather, and they are prepared to utilize the weather in executing judgment upon the planet during that time. We see another angel restraining those angels for a short time to allow for the sealing of the 144,000 Jews that will be saved after the rapture in the first part of the tribulation and will serve as evangelists during the tribulation period. We see angels involved in announcing and then carrying out the seal, trumpet, and then bowl judgments. We see a demonic army that is likened to locusts released from the bottomless pit to torment the unsaved upon the earth as the angelic conflict intensifies into the tribulation period. We see another demonic army restrained by four angels, and this is in the location generally of the Euphrates. Now, what's important is that that is also the location of uh, ancient Babylon. We see the devil depicted as a fiery red dragon cast from heaven, along with the third of the angels at the midpoint of the tribulation, which, and all of these things come together in the last few years of the tribulation period. In the last three and a half years, angels, demons become visible to mankind, and it just seems like a rather bizarre event. But when you understand that, within the context of all of Scripture, it makes sense. That's why we're stopping and locating this within that overall a flow of what the Bible teaches about angels, because otherwise you get there and you just think, well, this is just bizarre. It's like John was hallucinating or something. Can you imagine angels and demons walking the streets and and all of these various uh, demon armies? It just sounds like something out of out of some sort of a 
Stephen King novel or science fiction novel or something like that. But the reality is that human history began in order to resolve a broader conflict, an angelic rebellion that began in eternity past when a when an angel, the highest of all the angels, known uh, usually as by the name Lucifer, became arrogant, wanted to be like God, revolted against God, and led approximately a third of the angels in revolt against God. God, in turn, condemned them to eternity in the lake of fire, and it was the lake of fire was created before uh, human history. However, there's a delay in their actual judgment, and that delay is caused by a challenge to God's justice. Satan apparently raises uh, some sort of question related to the justice of God in sentencing his creatures to an eternity in the lake of fire. Eternity is a long time. The lake of fire is a horrible, painful condemnation and punishment. So how can a loving God send creatures to the lake of fire? To understand that, we must understand the nature and consequences of sin, which I've pointed out in the last few weeks, that any act of rebellion against God, even something as innocuous as eating a piece of fruit, something many of you may have done this morning for breakfast, when done in rebellion against God, results in such a an untold, unimaginable amount of grief and suffering and death that was completely unintended that it deserves maximum punishment. That's what God is demonstrating, or one of the many things God is demonstrating in human history. So that's the broad picture. And so we're looking at the details of that with the a focus on the origin of this conflict and uh, the fall of Satan. So we see that the final destruction of Satan and the demons fits within the context in the book of Revelation of the destruction of Babylon. This is sometime in the future. And in Revelation 18, verse 2, we read, And he, that is the angel announcing this, cried mightily with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. The point is that God, at the end of these, this tribulation period, brings together the final judgment, both in terms of the angelic realm and the human realm. And so to understand its end, we must go back to its beginning because it is related to this whole understanding of what's going on with Babylon and identifying and understanding the biblical use of Babylon and its, uh, its actual history. So the issue that we're now addressing in the course of this study has to do with the origins of the angelic conflict, the origins of Satan and his fall. This pas- the passages that describe this are found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel chapter 28, 11 to 19. Now you can always remember those because Ezekiel 28, the number 28, isn't the double of 14. See, those are the kinds of things you learn when you go through Bible college and seminary so that you can regurgitate these things on an exam. So Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. See, now you'll never forget that. So these passages, though, have been historically understood to refer to the fall of Satan. However, I pointed out in the last few weeks 
that in recent years, in the last hundred years or so, various challenges have come to that interpretation. And it's now commonly rejected. In fact, some of you noticed in the study Bibles that you have in your laps that, that they make mention of this. That the, if you look at Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, that these passages are commonly thought to refer to the fall of Satan, but probably don't. Whereas if you'd looked at a Schofield reference Bible 50 years ago, it would have clearly identified this as the fall of Satan. And some of you are asking questions. Now, the trouble with folks asking questions is this. Some of you have good minds, and you ask questions that need detail. And some of these issues are important. And so sometimes it's necessary to take out a postal digger and kind of drill down on a couple of things. And I don't really have time to drill down on Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah, uh, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 21, and Jeremiah 15, 51 just now. So I'm going to summarize this this morning. That's a lot uh, to summarize. But just to begin with, I want to give you a little historical perspective on the interpretation of these verses. Last time I gave you nine reasons why these verses cannot refer to a human ruler, but must refer to that demonic power behind the throne, the Amanant's Greaves, the power behind the throne. Okay, first of all, there are three basic interpretations historically of these passages. The first is that this refers in some way to Satan and his original fall. And there are those who take the passages referring directly to Satan, and there are those who view it as either historical, a historical king of Babylon or historical uh, king of Tyre, but it's actually referring to the power behind that historical figure. Others see this as referring to a future leader who is empowered by Satan. Now, And ultimately, all these various views all ultimately see Satan as the ultimate reference in these passages. So I lump them together just under the category of Satan. Then there have been those who try to interpret the passage only in terms of a historical figure. They try to identify the, the reference in Isaiah 13 to either Sennacherib or to Nebuchadnezzar or to some try to just lump it all the kings of Babylon together. But uh, they just want to locate it. It's only a historical human figure. It doesn't have anything to do with Satan. And then in the late 19th century, with the advent of uh, 19th century Protestant liberalism, which used uh, Darwinian evolutionary ideas and applied them to, to religion, they, they assumed that all religion, including Christianity, went through stages of evolution. And so this is just some sort of primitive uh, myth that was adopted and uh, uh, brought into the Bible. There's no evidence of that. I'm not going to deal much with that. It's, uh, I've done a lot of research on this, and even though you will find a few evangelicals even who try to make this claim that it's, and it's an allusion to a Babylonian or Canaanite myth, no one has ever found a myth that even remotely resembles the vocabulary, the imagery, or anything in either Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, and they just assume it because they have uh, decided it couldn't really be talking about Satan. So those are the three basic ways in which the passage has been interpreted. Now, historically, those who have taken it as Satan 
has a tremendous track record. Those who interpret it uh, as Satan directly, you go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation uh, that the rabbis made of the Hebrew text. In the early church, the pseudepigrapha in the book, The Life of Adam and Eve, pseudepigrapha, for those of you who don't know, most of you probably don't, that's just a a book that literally pseudepigrapha means a false writing. It's, it was never considered to be part of the canon of Scripture, but it was an early Christian writing. In the life of Adam and Eve, which was written in the second century, uh, the Slavonic Enoch, which also is dated about the second century A.D., all take these uh, references to be Satan. Origen in the early church was the first to tie Isaiah 14 to Ezekiel 28, and he lived approximately... 200 A.D., very early, very prominent theologian. Tertullian, Cyprian, Gregory Thaumaturgus, Gregory Nazianzen, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. These were the three great uh, theologians of the uh, Nicene period. Uh, Jerome, and then the majority of theologians from Augustine to Gregory the Great all took this as being a reference to uh, Satan. In the Middle Ages... Peter Lombard, Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas. In the Reformation period, Milton, Bunyan, Wesley, William Kelly all understood this to refer to uh, all to Satan and the fall of Lucifer. In the modern era, uh, men like Chafer, Schofield, Barnhouse, uh, Gleason Archer, uh, Feinberg all took this as a reference to Satan, plus many, many others. This is just a, a representative indication. Uh, historically, there were those who uh, took this as a historical or typical view of Satan. Now, what's interesting is Hippolytus, who's about the same time as Origen, understood Isaiah 14 to be specifically re- referencing the Antichrist in the future and Satan behind him. And that's the view that, that I hold. I think he was right on. William Kelly, an early dispensationalist, took it the same way uh, as did uh, Delich, uh, De- Kyle and Delich fame. Uh, those who take it as historical only, the Jewish Talmud, Midrash, Rabbah, uh, Chrysostom, and interestingly enough, Calvin and Luther, but it had to do with how they understood uh, prophecy. They did not have a literal view of prophecy, and so that affected their interpretation of these passages. And then the mythological view enters in with the rise of modern liberalism. That's just a brief overview because there are those among you who ask questions like, where did this come from? So for those of you who aren't interested, well, you just had to sit through that. But there are others who are very interested and they need needed to get that particular information. Now, as we get into this uh, study, we have to look at the whole background and context of Isaiah 14, which is where we'll begin. Hopefully we'll be able to get through this in a couple of weeks because I don't intend to do a verse-by-verse exegesis of both passages, but we need to set this up. So we have to understand the importance of Isaiah 14 within its immediate context, which is Isaiah 13 and 14, which is in a broader context of of, uh, Isaiah's oracles or condemnations of Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14, Isaiah uh, 21, also within the broader context of the major prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah had these prophecies against Babylon, and then how that fits within the overall scope of uh, prophecy. 
Revelation 17 and 18, which we're going to get to eventually, as the final battle and destruction of this kingdom at the end of the tribulation period, uses vocabulary, imagery, and all from Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. You can't understand Revelation 17 and 18 without understanding the Old Testament background and prophecy. So this is going to help you with that as we set things up. Now, when we come to Revelation 17 and 18, it talks about a future empire or system. Some have thought it's a religious system in in, uh, 17, economic system in 18, but it pictures the destruction of these systems, these influences at the return of Christ and identifies that as Babylon. Now, interpreters have debated whether or not this was literal or symbolic. For example, uh, interpreters have, uh, some have viewed this symbolically, that Babylon represents the kingdom of the Antichrist in the final days. That's taken from the imagery there. Uh, but the problem with that is the in Revelation 17 and 18, the Babylon is the woman who rides the beast, The beast is the Antichrist and his kingdom. The woman riding the beast just shows the influence of Babylon, the dominating influence of Babylon on the kingdom of the Antichrist. Um, The symbolic view has numerous problems uh, because everywhere else in the Bible where the word Babylon is used, it's always literal. So you have no basis for saying that Babylon there represents the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Uh, furthermore, there are some problems with that view, which we'll get into, because they mistakenly interpret Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 as having already been fulfilled. That's really the crux of this issue. Is there a literal future city of Babylon that rises to political and economic dominance? Or is this simply an allusion to something like Babylon? That, that, that's what the issue is. But that hinges on whether or not the Old Testament prophecies were f- about the destruction of Babylon were fulfilled. So um, the symbolic view is based on the view that Babylon, the, the prophecies were fulfilled, and that just isn't true. So we have to go back and, wait a minute, go back and look at the Old Testament history. I'm getting ahead of myself on a slide here. We have to look at the Old Testament history. So let me give you about four points of background on Babylon, rather five points with a long sub-point. Okay, first of all, the description and imagery in Revelation 17 and 18 is based on these Old Testament passages, primarily Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 15, 51, as well as Ezekiel 26 to 28. Second point, In Isaiah 13 and 14, in Ezekiel 50 and 51, Isaiah and Jeremiah predict the literal physical destruction of Babylon in extremely graphic terms, and they repeatedly point out that it's going to be sudden, it's going to be total, and never, ever again will there be any inhabitation, any habitation, anyone dwelling at the site of Babylon. Once it is destroyed... It will never be lived in. There will never be a dwelling there, never, ever again. So we have to find out historically if that has occurred or not. 
Babylon is important in Scripture because it fits within a total flow of the conflict between the city of God and the city of man in the Bible. The city of God, of course, is Jerusalem. The city of man is Babylon. Babylon first is founded by Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 11, Nimrod and his cohorts build the Tower of Babel against God. It's a theological statement. We're going to run history our way. God, you no longer have anything to say about this, and they are in rebellion against God. The next time we see a reference to Babylon and Mesopotamia is in Genesis 14, where there is an invasion of five kings, <coughs> excuse me, invasion of four kings, led by, in Genesis 14.1, Amraphel, the king of Shinar. Shinar is where Babylon is located. And this is set over against, at the end of the episode, after Abraham destroys those armies with his men, he then brings tribute from the plunder to Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And throughout the Bible, you see this juxtaposition between Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the city of God, Babylon representing all that man is in trying to be independent of God. So the, there's silence after Genesis 14 about Babylon for some time, and this is during a time in, the ancient, in ancient history when Babylon experiences its initial rise to fame, it has its first major uh, empire, and we know of it through some of its leaders such as Hammurabi. By the time you get into the 8th century, that's the 700s, by the time you get into the 8th century, the time of Isaiah, the time of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, the Assyrian Empire dominates. That's the background for Isaiah. Assyria is in ascendancy. Assyria dominates. Babylon is just a major city within the Babylonian Empire. Uh, as we'll see from Isaiah, Isaiah is written during the reigns of four kings of Judah, Uzziah, uh, who dies in 539. So uh, Isaiah begins to uh, prophesy in 540, the year before Uzziah dies. Then Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Isaiah dies sometime after Hezekiah dies in 689. So we can put that on a timeline to help you visualize this a little better. In 740, Isaiah begins to prophesy. Then you have 700 B.C. By 681, uh, Isaiah is probably dead. We don't know exactly when he died. Tradition says that he was martyred. He was uh, the evil king Manasseh of uh, Judah uh, sawed him in half because uh, Manasseh didn't like what he, what he said God was saying. So Isaiah begins his ministry seven, about 740 to 739 B.C., dies sometime after 681 B.C. Now, here's a map so you can get this in your head. It's an uh, important map because this is the same area where there's so much trouble today. The area that I have circled, the, the top circle over here, is Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh today is located in the northern part of Iraq. Down in the south here, the, the, the circle in the southern part is around the city of Babylon, which is located approximately 80 or 90 miles due south of uh, Baghdad. 
Babylon is located on the Euphrates River. You can see the uh, Euphrates River here on the left coming down just by Babylon, and then the other river that comes down through this area known as the Fertile Crescent is the Tigris. Baghdad is located on the Tigris. Over here to the uh, east, you have Persia, modern Iran. Over here to the west, you have Syria, Jordan, modern Jordan, Saudi Arabia down to the south, and then, of course, over here on the Mediterranean, you have Israel. So the map is relevant, important today, because this is where we see the focal point of conflict in modern history. Now, in terms of ancient history, in 1 Kings chapter 20, we read of a Chaldean. He's from the Chalde tribe, and he conquers uh, Babylon to reestablish his own little kingdom, and he becomes a thorn in the flesh to the Assyrian rulers. For 300 years, Babylon had been under the control of Assyria, but under Merodach Baladan II, Babylon began to show some signs of independence and trying to assert itself against its Assyrian leaders. In 710 B.C., Sargon II finally defeats Merodach Baladan, uh, but during this time, Merodach Baladan went over to Judah to try to enlist an ally in uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah very foolishly shows him all the gold and silver and treasure in the temple. That is going to come back to haunt them later. But uh, in 710, uh, Merodach Baladan is, is defeated, but he isn't killed. He comes back to the throne for a short time a little later on. But this is the beginning of the rise of Babylon during the Chaldean Empire. By 625, when Ashurbanipal, the uh, ruler of the Assyrian Empire, dies, you have another Chaldean by the name of Nabopolassar show up who seizes the throne of Babylon in 625. Aided by the Medes, Medes, remember that, they're, they're a people from this northern part of modern Iran up here in these mountains. The Medes join with the Babylonians to defeat the Assyrians, and you have the ascendancy of what is called the Neo-Chaldean Empire under Nabopolassar. He dies in 609 and is succeeded by his son, Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, he dies in 605. Uh, 609 is when they defeat Assyria. He's succeeded by his son in 605 when he dies. His son is Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the uh, beginning of the Babylonian Empire that's a background for, Dan- for the book of Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar is the first king, and then he dies around uh, 650 in the 650s, but he establishes that modern Neo-Chaldean empire. It's under Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonians invade Judah three times, 605, 592, and 586. The first two times they take captives back to Babylon, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's the background for the first uh, four or five chapters of Daniel. And then in 586, he invades, that is, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah, defeats the Jews, destroys the temple in 586, and deports as captives a vast majority of the Jews living in uh, Judah at that particular time. In 539, Cyrus is leading the Persians, and there's an alliance between Persians and Medes, and they 
sort of sneak into Babylon. They dam up the river Euphrates at night. There was a major canal that went through the city. They dammed up the uh, river, and they came in under the walls of the city where the river had, had flowed, and Bel- Belshazzar's having this huge party. Most of you know the story. sees the handwriting on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, and finally gets Daniel in to interpret it. And Daniel says, you know, you've been weighed and found wanting, and your days are numbered. And just after that, they hear the noise out in the streets, and the Persians have taken the city almost without a shot. It's an easy transition of power. Daniel stays in Babylon. Babylon becomes a major provincial capital in the Persian Empire and continues to go on in existence for a number of years. Now, why is all of that important? Well, it's important because to understand these prophecies in, in, his, in uh, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 51, the other passages, you have to have at least that basic skeletal understanding of ancient history, which, since you're a product of uh, American public education, you didn't get. So let's just try to summarize all this. I've got about 15 points of summary but comparing these passages, this is a lot of material. And we could spend, because Jeremiah 15 and 51 are like 50 verse chapters. I mean, we could spend months going through this, but I'm trying to boil this down so you can understand this. What question are we trying to answer? We're trying to answer the question, did the prophecies of the Old Testament related to Babylon get fulfilled in 539 B.C. when Cyrus conquered the Babylonian Empire and took Babylon. That's what people think. If they did, if that was for the fulfillment, then Revelation 17 and 18 is going to be in a symbolic reference to Babylon. But if it wasn't fulfilled then, then we look forward to and anticipate a future resurrection of the city of Babylon, and there will be a literal Babylon that is destroyed in, uh, at the time of the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, let's look at these and just summarize the comparisons between Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 51, 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. I want you to show that, that what, what is revealed in these two Old Testament passages and Revelation 17 and 18 fit together perfectly. They're all talking about the same event. Okay. Let me see. Let me get past that. Okay. One other thing before we get there. One last chart. This chart gives us the organization of Isaiah 13 and 14. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 is a passage that refers to the fall of Satan. This is the basic organization. I just We'll come back to this next time. You'll see this again. I just want to point out one thing. The first part declares a coming day of the Lord, a day of radical judgment on Babylon. Isaiah 13.1 says this is the oracle against Babylon. The total and final destruction of Babylon is described in Isaiah 13.17-22. The center of this section is Isaiah 14.1-2, through 2, which says that after the, the destruction of Babylon... There will be a restoration, a final restoration of a united Israel in the land. And there will be peace. That didn't happen historically. 
That is your crux interpretive, the, the centerpiece of your interpretation. Isaiah 14, 1 through 2 didn't happen after 539. It just didn't. Then there is a taunt rehearsing the total destruction of Babylon's king in 14.3 through 21, in the middle of which is this reference to the power behind the throne. And then there's a summary of the Lord's defeat of Babylon in uh, 14.22 to 23. It's a chiasm. We studied this before, chi from the Greek letter that's like an X, and it points to the center element is your your key element. And the key element in this section, uh, Isaiah 13 and 14, must be taken as an integrated whole. Isaiah 14, 1 and 2 is emphasizing the fact that God is promising Israel there will be a judgment of your enemies. Following that, you will return to the land. I will fulfill my promises to you. There will be universal peace, and there will be a time of rest that will come. All of this prophecy is related simply to God's uh, faithfulness and his encouragement to the people that no matter how much, th- how chaotic things look, no matter how many times the nation may be overrun, I will be true to my promises. The same is true for every uh, single believer in Jesus Christ in history. No matter how chaotic things may look in our historical era, we know that God is in control that God will bring about the close of history as he has prophesied and as he has promised, and there will be a time of rest and stability because he is faithful to his promises. One last chart. We live in the present church age. This age will end with the rapture of the church. If you are here this morning, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if Jesus returns tomorrow... We go up to be with him in the air. Following the rapture of the church, we don't know how long there will be some sort of transition period of a few years. There will be a seven-year period known as the tribulation, the time of uh, Jacob's uh, trouble. And this is what the lion's share of Revelation is about, Revelation 4 through 19. That ends with the campaign, the military campaign, or the War of Armageddon, which ends with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeats the Antichrist, the armies of the Antichrist, and destroys Babylon. That's what we're talking about, is this future, yet future event. That will be followed by a thousand-year kingdom of rest on the earth. Okay? That sets the context. Okay, let's look at the comparison of these passages. Jeremiah uh, 1551 Revelation 17 and 18 and Isaiah 13. And in these passages, there is reference to the evil influence of Babylon, and it is compared to drinking wine from a golden cup. Jeremiah 51, 7 says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands. That indicates his sovereign control over history. And this golden cup made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. That's a picture of her influence over the nations. Therefore, the nations are deranged. In Revelation 17, 3 and 4, we read, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven horns, seven heads and ten horns. The woman is Babylon. 
Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. See, same thing. You have the golden cup in both places. The golden cup is mentioned again in Revelation 18, verse 6, that in her cup in which she is has mixed, mixed double for her. That is a reference to this woman riding the beast. Uh, the second point, the influence of Babylon is compared to dwelling on many waters. Waters is used as a symbol for the nations. Jeremiah 51.13, O you who dwell by many waters, and addressing Babylon, abundant in treasures, your end has come. Revelation 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Same imagery. Third point of comparison. Uh, All of this has to do with the general description of the city. Babylon will be surrounded and attacked by many nations whom she has influenced. Isaiah 13, the context that we're looking at, says that Babylon will be as the hunted gazelle, and every man will turn to his own people, everyone will flee to his own land. Uh, this is talking about the coming judgment on Babylon because the nations uh, re- will attack her. Revelation, uh, let me see, Jeremiah 51.7, again talking about the nations drank her wine and are then deranged. They become angry with her. Revelation 17.2 again mentions this same thing with the kings of the earth. Fourth point of comparison on the description of the city, they all relate to the same name. They're all identified as Babylon. Isaiah thirteen nineteen says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in Isaiah 21, 9, it says again, the angel announces, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Then we have Jeremiah 50, verse 1, the word, of the, Lord's, the word the Lord spoke against Babylon. Revelation 17, 5, written on her forehead was the name Mystery Babylon the Great. So all of these are identified with the same literal name of, of Babylon. Okay, so the point that I'm making is, All these passages are oracles, judgments, prophecies about the destruction of the same place identified as Babylon. This Babylon has the same kind of influence over all the nations. It's described with the same metaphors, the same imagery, so it refers to the same place. Then we have comparisons on how they describe the destruction of the city of Babylon. First of all, Babylon is going to be destroyed quickly, Suddenly and unexpectedly. Jeremiah 51.8, we read, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. It's not expected. It, it, it's, other passages say it happens in a day. It's, it's out of the blue. Revelation 18.8 says, Therefore her plagues will come in one day. It is quick and sudden. Second point of uh, comparison, the destruction of the city is described as uh, being accomplished by the Medes who will pillage, plunder, and massacre the women and children. Isaiah 13 says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Isaiah 21.2 says, Again, uh, Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. Uh, Jeremiah 51.11 
talks about the fact, make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Notice no mention of the Persians. The Medes are in modern Iran. Jeremiah 51, 28 again focuses on the kings of the Medes. Third point of comparison. Babylon will be also be destroyed with an alliance, not only the Medes, but nations from the north. Ararat, that's located in uh, modern Turkey. Uh, Mini, which is located in that same area up towards uh, um, the mo- modern Russia. And Ashkenaz, which is western Europe. Uh, Jeremiah 50, verse 3, identifies these that out of the north a nation comes up against her. Uh, Jeremiah 50, verse 9, I'll raise and cause up cause to come up against Babylon, an assembly of great nations from the north country. Where's Persia? We saw it on the map. Where's Persia in relationship to Babylon? North or east? East. See, this couldn't have been fulfilled in 539 by Cyrus because Cyrus isn't coming from, didn't come from the right direction. Jeremiah 51.27 Set up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her, call the kingdoms together, Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. So they are, there's an invasion from the north. Uh, Babylon will be destroyed by fire. Point number five, Jeremiah 51.30, Revelation 17.6, Revelation 18.8, all talk about the fact that she will be burned with fire. That did not happen in 539. Cyrus took it almost without firing a shot. It was not burned and destroyed. They continue to inhabit it. Uh, point number six, the prophecies agree in Isaiah 13, Jeremiah, and on. I have several verses here. It's repeated again and again. It will never, ever, ever, ever again be inhabited. Isaiah 13:19 says, It will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. There's nothing there, folks, at Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no inhabitation. It is uninhabitable. But there have been ongoing Arab villages within the confines of the ancient walls of Babylon throughout all time. It's never been totally destroyed. Isaiah 13 says, 13.20 says, It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the uh, Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. It's not even going to be a dwelling place for Bedouins. And yet there have been Arab and Bedouin villages there throughout all of the last uh, 20 centuries at least. Isaiah 13.21 says, But wild beasts of the desert will lie there. Their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats. It's just going to be inhabited by wild animals. Isaiah 14.23, after our passage describing the fall of of, uh, Satan, I will also make it a possession for the porcupine, marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord. Jeremiah 50 has the same imagery. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she will not be inhabited. Jeremiah 50, verse 13. Jeremiah 51 uh, 29, the land will tremble in sorrow for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Jeremiah 51, 37, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and hissing without an inhabitant. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness. This did not happen in 539. 
Daniel continued to live there. It was a major city, even under the Parthians. It lost power, it lost prestige, it lost population. But even at the time of the New Testament, there was still a, a fairly large population there, 15, 20,000. Uh, the Middle Ages, we don't know much of what went on during the early part of the 20th century, but when Europeans started going back there in the 1700s and 1800s, there were Arab villages within the confines of ancient Babylon. Uh, it's described as uh, being totally and absolutely destroyed by violence, and it would never be found again. Point number seven, or comparison number seven, the whole of Babylon is destroyed. Isaiah 13 says they come from a far country uh, to destroy the whole land. Uh, Point number eight, Babylon will be severely punished for her, her hostility to God and Israel. Jeremiah 50, verse 29, God says, Repay her according to her work, according to all that she has done in relationship to Israel due to her for she has been proud against the Lord. Revelation 18.6, Render to her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. The same language is used, same imagery. Point number nine, this time of judgment on Babylon is described as the day of the Lord. Joel chapter two and three describes the day of the Lord. This is a term usually used for the end period of the tribulation. Isaiah 13, 6, and 6 through 9, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction for the Almighty. Skip down to verse 9. Uh, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. Isaiah 21, 31 describes it as labor pangs. This is typical imagery used to describe uh, the day of the Lord as, uh, as labor pangs, birth pangs. Uh, also, the darkening of the sun and the moon in Isaiah 13, uh, 10 and 11. There's earthquakes. There, all these other things accompany it. Also, Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from the midst of Babylon. Everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Point number 10, the final destruction of Babylon is depicted by the same imagery of a stone being thrown into the Euphrates. Jeremiah 51, 63 and 64, uh, this stone is thrown into the Euphrates. Then in verse 64, then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her and they shall be weary. Revelation 18.21 says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon which shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. So you have the same image, reverse, uh, the 11th point of comparison. The destroyer is the Lord of hosts, who in the Old Testament is, off, is a uh, title that often describes the pre-incarnate Christ as he is leading the armies of Israel in victory. Jeremiah 51, 19, and 20 describes the one who destroys Babylon as the Lord of hosts, as his name in 51, 19. Uh, Jeremiah 51, 55 says, The Lord is plundering Babylon. And then in Revelation 17, 14, These will make war with the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Point number 12, God's people are told to flee Babylon 
when Babylon's destroyed. Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Uh, Jeremiah 51, 45, my people go out of the midst of her. Uh, Revelation 18, 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Uh, this didn't happen. Daniel stayed in Babylon. He didn't flee. See, it wasn't fulfilled in the ancient world. Uh, point number 13, heaven rejoices at the final destruction of Babylon, Jeremiah 51:48, along with Revelation 18:20. I'm just skipping through these. I'm not going to read all the verses. We'd be here all day. Uh, 14, following the destruction, there is peace on the whole earth. Isaiah 14, 7, our passage. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. See, following the judgment on Babylon, there will be a time of, of Israel and Judah reunited. There's a, there, they come back to the Lord, and there's a time of, of spiritual obedience to the Lord, and they, the whole earth is at peace. This did not happen in 539. It did not happen in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13 has not been fulfilled. Jeremiah 15, 51 has not been fulfilled. These judgments announced in the Old Testament become fulfilled in Re- at the end of the tribulation in Revelation 17 and 18. The last comparison, 15, following the destruction, Israel is united and obedient to the Lord. Isaiah 14, 1 through 4. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. They are brought back. Only a few thousand returned in 536. Less than 5,000 returned with Zerubbabel. And uh, even at the time of Christ, the vast majority of Jews lived outside the land and stayed in the uh, diaspora. Jeremiah 50, verse 4, In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come together, they and the children of Judah together. With continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. That's new covenant terminology that happens when Jesus Christ returns. That will not be forgotten. Okay, let's just summarize this. What we've seen is that, number one, Babylon will be destroyed suddenly and unexpectedly. Jeremiah 51.8. That did not happen. It was uh, sudden, but it wasn't destroyed. It was conquered suddenly, but it was not destroyed suddenly. That is what the prophecies suggest. Babylon continued as the provincial capital of the Persian Empire. Babylon was to be destroyed completely, according to Jeremiah 50, verse 3, Jeremiah 50, verse 39 and 40, and Jeremiah 51, 29. But it was not destroyed completely. Number one, the Persians came from the east and not the north. Uh, Babylon remained a major inhabited city for another 500 years at least, though her numbers diminished throughout the church age. Arabs had lived there. Their judgment uh, is uh, described in Isaiah 13 as final and complete, That has not yet happened. Babylon was not destroyed as a city. It gradually deteriorated and became insignificant and just fell apart. But uh, 
various villages remained there. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, Robert Koldewey, a German archaeologist, made extensive studies in Babylon beginning in 1899, and he writes, At the bend of the Euphrates, between Babel and Kasser, lie the ruins of the former village of Quiresh, whose population migrated elsewhere a hundred years ago. The walls of mud brick still overtop the heaps of debris. The modern village of Quiresh lies close to the Kasser, to which we must now turn our attention. The most northerly house of Quiresh is the headquarters of our expedition called by the Arabs, Kasser Avid. And this is, this is located, according to his maps, within the walls of ancient Babylon. Furthermore, the prophecy in Jeremiah 51 says that the stones and the bricks of destroyed Babylon would never be reused. Uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 26, that they would be desolate forever. However, to this day, according to Austin Layard, who wrote in uh, 1875, he says, To this day there are men who have no other trade than that of gathering bricks from this vast heap and taking them for sale to the neighboring towns and villages and even to Baghdad. There is scarcely a house in Hila which is not almost entirely built with them. And as the traveler passes through the narrow streets, he sees in the walls of every hovel a record of the glory and power of Nebuchadnezzar. The prophecies have not been fulfilled. Fourth, Jeremiah warns all the Jews and believers to flee Babylon prior to the destruction. Jeremiah 50, verse 8, but that did not happen. Finally, Israel and Judah are to be reunited in a time of spiritual revival, according to Jeremiah 50, verse 4, and Jeremiah 50, verse 5, that did not happen. The modern Iraqis have been rebuilding Babylon. It started in the early years of Saddam Hussein in, in the early 80s. And I have a couple of pictures. Let me skip ahead here. A couple of pictures of the reconstruction of modern Babylon on the same site. In fact, I've given a mission to uh, Bill Stebbins. Major Stebbins is on his way. He departs Tuesday to go to uh, Iraq. And while he is there, uh, he's going to do some investigation of what's going on uh, now in, in Babylon and try to get some, uh, some better pictures. But this is some of the reconstruction that occurred under Saddam Hussein. In fact, he had several large festivals there uh, at Babylon uh, where he was touting its future glory under him, and he saw himself as a revived Nebuchadnezzar. But, of course, his attempts to uh, uh, restart Babylon did not work. This is a, a reconstruction of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and this is a picture of the reconstruction of the famous Ishtar gate in Babylon. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is simply to understand that there is a, you you can't just go into the Bible and just go into Revelation and just pick out a chapter and say, okay, I can read this and I'll figure out what it means. You have to understand the whole flow of God's plan and purpose in history. That plan and purpose focuses on the cross where Satan was defeated. But the final, the final battle where Judgment of evil and sin and injustice takes place is that battle of Armageddon, that great end time period at the end of, of the tribulation. And we recognize that, that from the Old Testament all the way up to the present, that has been prophesied. 
And so when we go back to uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 next week and we look at the content there that immediately surrounds the passage in Isaiah uh, 14, 12 to 14, we realize that what, what Isaiah was talking about was not just the final judgment of future Babylon, but that the leader was the Antichrist and the one who empowers the Antichrist is Satan. So that Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 depicts the arrogance of Satan as he originally rebelled against God and attempted to make himself as God and to be worshipped as God. And it is from that that all sin and evil in the universe derived. So we'll get to that uh, next time. Now we try to pull all this together and I know what I'm going to hear all week long is I'm going to have to get the DVD and watch that five more times to get everything that was in uh, the morning message because that was so jam-packed. Well, sometimes you just have to jam-pack to get the flow. And now you have the flow. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, study your word. We thank you for the way that we see this flow of history that even that you have declared the end from the beginning, that there is no other God like you who prophesies in such detail. And where we can go to the scriptures and see fulfilled prophecy, it is down to the most minute detail. Because you are the sovereign God of history. It is in your hands that you hold the destinies, the history of nations, and we know that ultimately you will bring to fruition all judgment, all justice, and your righteous judgment will reign in history. Now, Father, we also pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. We never know when our life may be taken or when the Lord will come back. And if the Lord comes back, that will be followed by a period of unimaginable horror and suffering known as the Great Tribulation. And if we don't trust in Christ as our Savior, then that is followed by an eternity of judgment because of our failure to trust in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that has never trusted Christ as Savior, they would do so right now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's either a statement of colossal arrogance or it's the absolute truth. Nothing in Jesus' life indicated arrogance. He was stating the truth, that he was the eternal second person of the Trinity who came to earth to pay the penalty for our sins, and by believing in him and him alone, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.